Welcome to the Law with D.K. Williams, giving the courts credit when they get it right, calling them out when they get it wrong. Welcome back to the Law. I'm D.K. Williams, and we are up to episode 46, and we're going to discuss a U.S. Supreme Court case that just came out less than two months ago in this most recent term on June 26, 2019. It deals with prohibition. Prohibition, you might ask? Why would the U.S. Supreme Court issue an opinion in 2019 that dealt with prohibition? Ah, well, we'll tell you exactly why. The case is Tennessee Wine and Spirits Retailers Association versus Thomas. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you by Speakeasy Ideas. You can subscribe to The Law and other Speakeasy podcasts through your favorite podcast app and always hear them at speakeasyideas.com. You can go straight to this podcast by speakeasyideas.com slash the law for this podcast and the archives. Follow The Law on social media at Twitter, The Law, D.K.W., and on Facebook.com slash The Law with D.K. Williams. I'd love to hear from you. I really want to thank our Speakeasy sponsors, Prudential Wealth Management in Loveland and Greenwood Village. Presidential Wealth Management is a team of people ready to help feisty, free-minded citizens keep and enjoy more of what they have earned. Check them out at presidentialwm.com, Prudential Wealth Management. Also, Straightforward Shooting, owner Tina Francone at straightforwardshooting.com. They offer individualized fun, safe firearms training, and pepper spray instructions. Their firearms training classes are comprehensive and unique. They guarantee personalized instruction addressed to you and your needs. Whether you're a beginner or an advanced student, their experienced NRA-certified instructors can improve your skills. That's straightforwardshooting.com. Check them out. And also, Grand Lake U.S. Constitution Week. This is the 8th annual Constitution Week, home of the premier celebration in America in beautiful Grand Lake, Colorado. From September 16th to the 21st, Big Easy Ideas will be there, and we hope you will be too. For more information, please visit GrandLakeUSConstitutionWeek.com. And if you want to promote your business on The Law with D.K. Williams, please send an email to Bethany at SpeakeasyIdeas.com. The named participants, who are these people in this case we're talking about this week? First, it's the Tennessee Wine and Spirits Retailers Association. I think their name pretty much sums it up. It's a trade group. I might just call it the Association or Tennessee Wine, so I don't have to say that entire thing. Uh, But you get the idea who they are. Retailers Association. They have sued Thomas. Who is this Thomas fellow? It's Russell F. Thomas, and he is the current executive director of the Tennessee Alcoholic Beverage Commission. So he's in charge of a state bureau. And since this is a dispute about enforcing Tennessee alcohol rules, and he's the executive director of the ABC Alcoholic Beverage Commission, his name is on the lawsuit. So what is this dispute? What is going on here? Why are they in court? Tennessee had a state law that says you cannot be licensed to operate a retail liquor store in the state unless you have resided in the state for at least two years. Another rule they had A corporation could not be licensed to run a liquor store in Tennessee unless all of its stockholders were residents of Tennessee. And another one is that you couldn't get a renewal of your license unless you lived in Tennessee continuously for the past 10 years. So those are some pretty restrictive residential requirements that are, I mean, come on, who are we kidding? They're there to protect the existing liquor stores, the retailers association, the people that are members of that association. These are there to protect them. Now, the retailers are going to say that, no, 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 no. 
we really care about the health and safety and well-being of the citizens of Tennessee. And if we let just anybody come in here that hasn't been living here for two years, Lord knows what might happen to the people of Tennessee. So they, they make that argument with a straight face, which is kind of sad. And we'll talk about that argument and what the court makes of it. And the way the Supreme Court has interpreted a lot of these statutes, it encourages these pretextual reasons for trying to do something in business. It's like, oh, no, 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 we're not doing this just to make money. We are doing this for the health and safety of our fellow citizens, which is nonsense. But that's how the Supreme Court often decides who's going to win or lose on these things. So there were a couple of people entities that did not meet this two-year residency requirement. They did not live, live in Tennessee, and they wanted to open a liquor store. Each one of them did. So the issue came to the state attorney general who was asked, you know, I don't think these residency, residency requirements are really constitutional. I, I think we got a problems with them. So the state AG issued an opinion that the residency requirements unconstitutionally discriminated against out-of-state interests in violation of the Commerce Clause. So due to this opinion, the Tennessee Alcoholic Beverage Commission, which is Thomas is ahead of that now, they declined to enforce this residency requirement. Guess who didn't like that? Yep, the Tennessee Wine and Spirits Retailers. The residency requirement kept out competition. They wanted that barrier to entry enforced. And there's your dispute. Therein lies the rub. That dispute ended up in the U.S. Supreme Court, and that's what we're discussing this week. And I just want to mention this concept, and we're going to get into it probably too much, but this concept of the dormant commerce clause. And we've discussed several times the commerce clause itself. Discuss that because it keeps coming up in Supreme Court jurisprudence. Congress has the legit constitutional authority to regulate interstate commerce, right? Not intra, but interstate commerce. One of their actual legitimate things they are allowed to do under the Constitution. The dormant commerce clause is this idea that Congress doesn't have to regulate anything to keep states from protectionist policies. And we'll get into that idea a little bit more, but it's a concept I want to address right up front. So this dormant commerce clause means, and the Supreme Court has created this, it means that a state law that discriminates against an out-of-state economic actor, out-of-state goods, that those laws can be sustained only on a showing. That is, and here's this magic nonsensical legal language. If that law discriminating against out-of-state products or economic actors, it must be narrowly tailored to advance a legitimate local purpose. And you can't tell what my incredulous face is on. Here we go again, because this bugs me to no end. And we've talked about it. The Supreme Court has said, under this dormant Commerce Clause doctrine that they made up, that one state cannot discriminate against out-of-state goods unless that state has a really good reason, unless they're advancing a legitimate local purpose. It's nonsense, and that's just one of the reasons this idea of a dormant Commerce Clause doesn't make any sense. I won't say that. It makes sense. It's good policy, but it's not constitutional. And there's a provision for that policy to be implemented by Congress, but not by the Supreme Court. So not only does the court deal with this dormant commerce clause issue, they have to address and specifically look at the 21st Amendment. That's the one that ended prohibition in 1933. Because the amendment itself, 21st Amendment, addresses what states can do in relationship to alcohol sales. And what is going on here in this Tennessee wine case applies to that part of the 21st Amendment. So the 21st Amendment repealed national prohibition, but it specifically allowed states to ban it, to be completely dry, or otherwise regulated as that state saw fit within the state boundaries. And the retailers here, Tennessee Wine, argued that the 21st Amendment allow the state to regulate alcohol sales in such a way that the two-year residency requirement was legit. After going over these issues, the Supreme Court 
just a couple months ago in a 7-2 decision said Tennessee could not impose this two-year residency requirement. And those are the things we talked about on people who wanted or entities who wanted to open a liquor store in Tennessee. So what was the Supreme Court tally here? 7-2, Alito wrote the decision, generally considered a conservative. He was joined by Chief Justice John Roberts, can go either way, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, generally considered more on the progressive side of things, Stephen Breyer over there as well, Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan, also on that side of things, and Brett Kavanaugh, one of the newer, more conservative justices. The dissent was written by Neil Gorsuch, and Clarence Thomas joined in that dissent. So notwithstanding the dissenters, you can see this case was not split down ideological lines with Kavanaugh and Alito on the same side as RBG and Kagan. So let's get into what the court says. The 21st Amendment is crucial to the outcome of this case. Let's go to the source. Y'all know that is a recurring theme on the law. We read the cases you care about. And if you really care about them, you read them. We read the Constitution. Don't rely on Rachel Maddow or Laura Ingram or anyone else to tell you what these things say when you can read them yourself. That's a great thing about modern technology. How I like to describe it, you know, having an opinion about a Supreme Court case or any case you haven't read is akin to having an opinion about a restaurant to which you've never been. 21st Amendment, what does it actually say? Section 1, the 18th Article of Amendment to the Constitution of the United States is hereby repealed. That's simple enough, I like it. And of course, the 18th Amendment was prohibition. Section 2, which comes into play here in the Tennessee wine case, says... The transportation or importation into any state, territory, or possession of the United States for delivery or use therein of intoxicating liquors in violation of the laws thereof is hereby prohibited. Okay, that's it. Not quite as straightforward as the first one, but point of section two is that national prohibition is over, but if a state wants to, they can still be dry. They, they can still not allow alcohol sales in that state. Now, applying that provision has proven somewhat problematic. It's not as crystal clear as it probably should be. And that section two of the 21st Amendment is why this case is before the Supreme Court. All right, so let's get into the language of the opinion. Alito, writing for the court, explains. Section two was adopted as part of the scheme that ended prohibition on the national level. It gives each state leeway in choosing the alcohol-related public health and safety measures that its citizens find desirable. But Section 2 is not a license to impose all manner of protectionist restrictions on commerce and alcoholic beverages. Because Tennessee's two-year residency requirement for retail license applicants blatantly favors the state's residents and has little relationship to public health and safety, it is unconstitutional. So that's the bottom line in this opinion. But pretending the residency requirement is anything other than protectionist is disingenuous. And I don't think much of lawyers who make such arguments, as the state lawyers did here, they're saying, oh, no, 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 this isn't about protectionism. This is about health and safety. I mean, come on, don't don't embarrass yourself with that. And if you're willing to make an argument like that, if you're willing to do anything because it's your job and you're getting money for it, I think there's a word for that. Several, actually. Alito for the court goes on. The state, Tennessee, issues different types of licenses to producers, wholesalers, and retailers of alcoholic beverages. Isn't that awesome? The Tennessee Alcoholic Beverage Commission, ABC, is set up to issue these licenses. So it's the Tennessee ABC Alcohol Beverage Commission, which reminded me that in North Carolina, which where I was for a long time until 2002, when I went to college and all that, they have ABC stores, 
alcoholic beverage commission stores. No private liquor stores. You have to go to the state store to get it. Now, Section 2 of the 21st Amendment allows all kinds of widely different rules from state to state like that, and that's cool. I mean, each state should be allowed to do it. That's fine. And until this year in Colorado, grocery stores could not sell full-strength beer. They could only sell beer that was up to 3.2% alcohol, and real beer is usually around 5% or more. And back in the day, I think this has changed, but South Carolina only allowed airplane bottles in bars. So I think the, I mean, the idea, I think, was to protect the consumer from, from short pours. But you can imagine how the display of bottles behind the bar is not nearly as impressive when they're all only little tiny plastic airplane bottles. And one other example of this that affected me personally, when I was in North Carolina, the drinking age went up from 19 to 21 because the federal government was holding states hostage with federal money, which is a whole other concept. But back when they were doing that, North Carolina raised it from 19 to 21, and they did not grandfather it in. And I was 19 when it was legal to drink at 19. So my freshman year, I was 19 and legal. Then the law kicked in and it went up to 21. So my sophomore year, I was 20 and no longer legal. And then my junior year, I hit 21 and I was legal again. But you can see also how the prohibition on these things does not solve a problem. I couldn't drink when I was 20 legally, but I was in a fraternity. It didn't solve the problem of me drinking or 20-year-olds drinking. It just made certain activity illegal. And solving a problem and making it illegal are not the same thing, despite what many modern-day drug warriors and gunophobes believe. They think that, hey, if you pass a law, you solve a problem. And that's not the way it works, right? No, it doesn't work that way. When you pass a law, you've given state, the state, more power over society, more power over individuals. And I submit making a disfavored activity illegal might not always be the best idea. One more alcohol and state regulation story. North Carolina, back in the day, prohibited the sale of alcohol on Sundays until 1 o'clock. So at 1 o'clock, you could get some liquor, get a beer. But then the NFL granted Charlotte its team, the Panthers. Games kick off at 1 o'clock Eastern time. So not allowing beer sales in the stadium until kickoff was going to hamper beer, beer sales, right? And perhaps create some really long lines at the concession stands that might not dissipate until into the first quarter. The stadium might be relatively empty when that kickoff because people are waiting until 1 o'clock to get the beer and 1 o'clock is when there's kickoff. There's nothing like a new NFL team to motivate the state legislature to change a law. And they did. They moved the time back from 1 o'clock to noon so that gave everybody an hour to buy beer in the stadium. So back to Tennessee. We talked about they have three different types of liquor licenses, a producer's license, a wholesaler's license, and a retailing license. Heaven forbid an industry not have multiple levels of government regulations and a large staff of state employees to enforce them. What would we do without that? So part of these regulations included this two-year residency requirement in dispute here in this case. Back to Alito, he writes about this. The Tennessee General Assembly responded to the AG's opinion by amending the relevant laws to include a statement of legislative intent. Citing the alcohol content of the beverages sold in liquor stores, the Assembly found that protection of the health, safety, and welfare of Tennesseans called for a higher degree of oversight, control, and accountability for individuals involved in the ownership, management, and control of such outlets. After the amendments became law, the Attorney General was again asked, hey, do you guys think this is constitutional, these durational residency requirements? And his answer was the same as before. In 2016, Tennessee Fine Wines and Spirits, which was going to name their store Total Wine, Spirits, Beer, and More. More? Doesn't wine, spirits, and beer cover all of that? What else is more? Are they going to sell tractor tires? Anyway, that group wanted to open a liquor store. Another one, Affleur Investments, wanted to open it. They applied for licenses to own and operate 
a liquor store in Tennessee, and they didn't meet the residential requirements. So the Tennessee ABC staff recommended approval of the applications because the AG had said those that statute's not constitutional. So the Tennessee ABC said we're not going to enforce the statute. But the petitioner here, the Tennessee Wine and Spirits Retailers Association, the trade group, threatened to sue if the Tennessee ABC granted those licenses. They did, and we got into court. So the existing in-state liquor stores want the government to help them limit their competition by enforcing these protectionist state statute. And they denied that it was about anything as base as protecting their market share and keeping competition out. They said, oh no, it's, it's about the health and safety and welfare of our fellow Tennessee residents. Eventually the case made it up to the Sixth Circuit, also ruled against the retailers. They were split two to one, but the association still lost. Alito talks about that. He says, all three of these circuit court judges agreed that neither the 10-year residency requirement for renewals nor the 100% resident shareholder requirement was constitutional under the court's 21st Amendment and Dormant Commerce Clause precedents. All right, so we mentioned that the Dormant Commerce Clause ultimately means that because Congress has been given power over interstate commerce in the Constitution, states cannot discriminate against interstate commerce, nor can they unduly burden interstate commerce, even in the absence of of federal legislation regulating the activity. So Congress has the power to regulate it, but they have not, therefore it's dormant. That's where that comes from. Now, Article 1, Section 8 gives Congress the power to regulate interstate commerce, but it does not say no state may discriminate against another state's products or residents. That part's not in the Constitution. So shouldn't the states be able to, unless Congress uses its legitimate constitutional authority to regulate that. Congress has the authority to regulate it. They can regulate it, but they haven't done it. So the Supreme Court says they haven't done it, so we're going to do it ourselves. And such a statute, a federal statute, would be easy to write, but that's not where we are. So the Supreme Court has said that this prohibition on protectionist laws of one state against another one is implicit in the Constitution. I'm always wary of words that are implicit. Implicit words can be found by those looking for them, like a kid looking at clouds. Hey, look, there's a dog and a bicycle. See it? It's right there. There's a snows. There are the handlebars. I don't see it. Keep looking. It's there. And that's what the Supreme Court can do. They can look until they find it because it's implicit. It's not really there. Alito goes on in this case. Applying standard dormant commerce clause scrutiny, the majority at the Sixth Circuit struck down these restrictions, reasoning that they facially discriminate against interstate commerce and that the interests there claim to further which is the health and safety stuff, can be adequately served through reasonable, non-discriminatory alternatives. And an argument outside of the Dormant Commerce Clause, if you're going to say, if the Dormant Commerce Clause wasn't a thing invented by the Supreme Court, Section 2 of the 21st Amendment says that the transportation or importation into any state for delivery or use therein of intoxicating liquors in violation of the laws thereof of the state is hereby prohibited. So the state can stay dry. They can prohibit the importation of liquor into the state, but they can also regulate or completely ban the use therein of intoxicating liquors. So licensing of liquor, the argument goes, is a regulation of the use therein, right? That's at least part of the argument. And if that is the case, they don't need to pretend it's for the protection of the health, safety, and welfare of the good people of Tennessee. They can just say, we get to do this. We can regulate it completely within our state. They can do an Eric Cartman impersonation. We can do what we want. Screw you guys. And that's why this idea that a state cannot discriminate against out-of-state products or economic actors unless they have a really good reason, which is what the Supreme Court is saying, that's problematic. 
the retailers here have to pretend they're doing it to protect the people of Tennessee. And they're pretending. And I submit a legal framework where pretending is necessary is inferior to one where pretending is not necessary. But hey, I'm a crazy libertarian, I know. Alito goes on. The dissent at the Court of Appeals disagreed, saying that this Section 2 of the 21st Amendment granted states virtually limitless authority, which is what I'm saying, without the commerce cl- dormant commerce clause, that's not an issue. 21st Amendment grants states virtually limitless authority to regulate the in-state distribution of alcohol, the only exception being for laws that serve no purpose besides economic protectionism. Well, then he throws in the exception, right? Well, where does that exception come from? Alito goes on. Applying that highly deferential standard, which means we're going to defer to the states, the dissent would have upheld the two-year residency requirement, as well as the provisions applying that requirement to all officers and directors of corporate applicants. The dissent argued that these provisions help to promote the state's interest in responsible consumption of alcohol and orderly liquor markets. I can't see that as being tenable in any way. This is where the pretext becomes absurd. If the 21st Amendment allows states to make any law about alcohol within its borders, then that's it. Generating pretext demeans the process. So let's try and keep the system honest. But again, this dormant commerce clause is the problem. When the Supreme Court says you can't discriminate because Congress hasn't done anything. If Congress does something, they've got the legitimate authority to stop this protectionism. But they haven't. So pretending that they have is the problem. Anyway, from the Sixth Circuit decision where the Retailers Association lost again, they appeal to the Supreme Court. And one of the first things the Supreme Court does in this case is really get into this dormant commerce clause idea. Gorsuch and Thomas, who dissented in this case, the two dissenters, don't think much of this dormant commerce clause idea. But it's been around a long time, and it's been adopted by the Supreme Court, and the precedent is well established. And we've discussed this concept of precedent and stare decisis, the pretentious Latin phrase. Lawyers like to use that just means it's been decided. And once it's been decided, the Supreme Court isn't going to change it. That's stare decisis. That's relying on precedent. It's already been done. And we discussed that more extensively in the tax board case in episode 44. Go check that one out if you haven't already. Alito and the majority here in this Tennessee wine case explain the Commerce Clause and the notion of the Dormant Commerce Clause. He writes, The Court of Appeals, the Sixth Circuit Federal Court of Appeals, held that Tennessee's two-year residency requirement violates the Commerce Clause which provides that Congress shall have power to regulate commerce among the several states. Although the clause is framed as a positive grant of power to Congress, which is what I've been saying, right? We, the court, have long held that this clause also prohibits state laws that unduly restrict interstate commerce. This negative aspect of the Commerce Clause prevents the states from adopting protectionist measures and thus preserves a national market for goods and services. Alito keeps going. This interpretation, generally known as the Dormant Commerce Clause, has a long and complicated history. Its roots go back as far as 1824, where Chief Justice Marshall found that a version of the Dormant Commerce Clause argument had great force. Okay, let's stop and discuss this for a second. Regulating interstate commerce, one of the actual legitimate constitutional powers Congress possesses. But this dormant commerce clause idea means that by not doing anything, by not regulating, by not exercising its legitimate authority granted to it, Congress has regulated. By doing nothing, they've regulated. One state cannot discriminate against another because Congress could have done that. They could have made that regulation, but they didn't. But that's implicit. Now, again, it would be easy to pass legislation, congressional legislation, saying that one state cannot discriminate against another. And why don't they? Why aren't they required to? The court says... We, the Supreme Court, have long held that this clause, 
also prohibit state laws that unduly restrict interstate commerce. Okay, that's what they're saying. So the Supreme Court has decided it will wield the power given to Congress, the power to regulate interstate commerce. Congress's power, Supreme Court has decided it's going to do that. So this is one of those concepts that law students are just told to accept because that's what the Supreme Court said back in 1829 or whenever. But we don't have to just accept that. Gorsuch and Thomas don't accept it here in the dissent. Problem is they're outnumbered seven to two. So even when we agree with the outcome, and I agree with the policy outcome, states should not be allowed to restrict interstate commerce, but the constitutional process and separation of powers is important. When we start ignoring that process and the constitutional separation of powers for results that we like, guess what happens? Someone else is going to ignore it for things that they like and we don't. So let's think about prohibition itself. Congress was honest enough back in 1919 to know that they did not have the constitutional authority to ban intra-state production, sale, and consumption of intoxicating liquors. So they had the decency to follow the Constitution and pass an amendment giving them that authority. They ultimately realized it was a really bad idea. That was bad policy. We messed up. Okay, that happens. They realized, hey, man, we, we've created a whole lot of violent gangsters. We're subsidizing them, among other things. And they repealed it, also via constitutional amendment, the one we're discussing now, the 21st. But after Wickard v. Filburn, which we talked about in Episode 5, when the Supreme Court said that the congressional authority to regulate interstate commerce also gave Congress the power to regulate activity neither interstate nor commerce, the door was left wide open for our modern-day war on drugs to commence via mere legislation. The very thing Congress knew it could not do in 1919, because they didn't have the authority to do it, so they knew they needed a constitutional amendment in 1919, but they didn't need it for the federal war on drugs. What's the difference? What happened between those two things? Wickard v. Filburn. When the Supreme Court rewrote the Constitution to give Congress the authority it did not have in 1919. There's just no way to spin that historically any other way. The Supreme Court amended the Constitution of Wickard v. Filburn. Alito goes on. This negative aspect of the Commerce Clause prevents the states from adopting protectionist measures and thus preserves a national market for goods and services. That's awesome policy. He's right. That policy should be implemented, but Congress should have passed that law, not the Supreme Court gazing into a fire like Melisandre in Game of Thrones to see what she can see implicit in the flames and declare it so. Alito and the seven-person majority acknowledge that this idea of a dormant Commerce Clause power has been critiqued, criticized, including by Gorsuch and Thomas in this dissent, where Gorsuch calls it peculiar. Indeed it is, but Alito continues. But the proposition that the Commerce Clause, by its own force, without congressional action, restricts state protectionism is deeply rooted in our case law. And without the dormant Commerce Clause, we would be left with a constitutional scheme that those who framed and ratified the Constitution would be surely, would surely find surprising. Well, Justice Alito is probably to the contrary. They'd be surprised to see the Supreme Court with so much policymaking power while the legislative branch has set by and ceded its power to both the judicial and the executive branches. Then the majority goes on, they discuss the history of the ratification of the Constitution and how the founders were very concerned about the states enacting protectionist policies amongst themselves. Alito says, And when the Constitution was sent to the state conventions, fostering free trade among the states was prominently cited as a reason for ratification. In the Federalist Number 7, Hamilton argued that state protectionism could lead to conflict among the states. And in number 11, he touted the benefits of a free national market. In the Federalist number 42, Madison sounded a similar theme. All that's true. But here's the deal. 
And Hamilton and Madison are correct. But this isn't an issue about that policy. That policy is good. The policy should be implemented. This is an issue of process. How do we implement that policy? Do we do it by Congress or do it by the Supreme Court? Do we do it the way the Constitution says or we just make it up as we go along? Guess which one the Supreme Court picked? They picked themselves. A long time ago, hundreds of years ago, they did this. And the Supreme Court continues to do it now. Alito says, In light of this background, it would be strange if the Constitution contained no provision curbing state protectionism. And at this point in the court's history, no provision other than the Commerce Clause could easily do the job. He's missing the point. The Commerce Clause gives Congress the authority to regulate interstate commerce. It does not require them to, but they're reading into a requirement that doesn't exist. For example, Congress has the authority, the power to declare war. That doesn't mean they must. Congress has the authority to regulate, to stop interstate discrimination in trade. It doesn't mean they must. Yes, they should, but it doesn't mean they must. And that procedure, that process is important. And I don't usually cite the footnotes, but this one, I'm gonna. Footnote four, the court says, Alito. But one way or the other, it would grossly distort the Constitution to hold that it provides no protection against a broad swath of state protectionist measures. Even at the time of the adoption of the Constitution, it would have been asking a lot to require that Congress pass a law striking down every protectionist measure that a state or unit of local government chose to enact. Yeah, but Congress would not have to strike down every protectionist policy enacted by the states or their subdivisions. There's an easier thing Congress could do. Let me give it a shot see what I can come up with. How about federal statute that says, no state or political subdivision thereof may discriminate against another state in the sale of goods or any other economic activity across state lines. That's it. I came up with that in about 45 seconds, and I'm sure something could be devised that would have done the job just as simply and better. It can be done. The majority, however, disagrees with that conclusion, and so I'm alone with Gorsuch and Thomas in this case. And as to the Dormant Commerce Clause power as it applies to this Tennessee wine case, the majority says, they conclude, in light of this history and our established case law, we reiterate that the Commerce Clause, by its own force, restricts state protectionism even though Congress has the leg legitimate authority to do so and has not. Okay, I added that last part about Congress. Alito didn't write that. But that's implicit. We're going to talk about finding implicit things. So after that conclusion about the Dormant Commerce Clause, Alito goes on. Under our Dormant Commerce Clause cases, if a state law discriminates against out-of-state goods or non-resident economic actors, the law can be sustained only on a showing that it is narrowly tailored to advance a legitimate local purpose. In the words of, okay, go, here we go again. The Constitution, the Dormant Commerce Clause, according to the majority, says states can't discriminate against out-of-state economic actors unless the state has a really good reason. Is that the way the Constitution works? Government can infringe on the freedom of speech if they have a really good reason to infringe it. No. The government can infringe on your right to assemble if they have a really good reason. No. So it's back to this Dormant Commerce Clause idea that they've made up a long time ago. Where is this exception about advancing a legitimate local purpose? So they've created this dormant commerce clause. States can't be protectionist. And then they add on that thing they made up unless they've got a legitimate local purpose. So when the Supreme Court starts finding implied powers and they start finding implied rules on how states should use those implied powers, and it just gets worse and worse. So after this long discussion on the dormant commerce clause, the majority says the two-year residency requirement doesn't hold up. Tennessee cannot mandate that two-year stay. And after all that, the Supreme Court says, you know what, Tennessee doesn't even dispute that. Well, the Tennessee wine 
Trade Association doesn't dispute that. Instead, the majority says, their arguments are based on Section 2 of the 21st Amendment, to which we now turn. Finally, am I right? The court says, as we've gone over, Section 2 of the 21st Amendment provides as follows, in pertinent part, that transportation or importation into any state for delivery or use therein of intoxicating liquors in violation of the laws thereof is hereby prohibited. The court goes on. Although the interpretation of any provision of the Constitution must begin with a consideration of the literal meaning of that particular provision, reading Section 2 to prohibit the transportation or importation of alcoholic beverages in violation of any state law would lead to absurd results that the provision cannot have been meant to produce. The court goes on, and they make a good point here, so follow this. Such a reading of Section 2, that the state can regulate liquor any way they want, inside their state, would mean that the provision would trump any irreconcilable provision of the original Constitution. The Bill of Rights, the 14th Amendment, and every other constitutional provision predating ratification of the 21st Amendment in 1933. This would mean that a state law prohibiting the importation of alcohol for sale to persons of a particular race, religion, or sex would be immunized from challenge under the Equal Protection Clause. Similarly, if a state law prohibited the importation of alcohol, for sale by proprietors who had expressed an unpopular point of view on an important public issue, the First Amendment would provide no protection. If a state retroactively made it a crime to have bought or sold imported alcohol under specified conditions, the ex post facto clause would provide no barrier to prosecution. The list goes on. Despite the ostensibly broad text of Section 2, no one now contends that the provision must be interpreted in this way. Instead, we have held that Section 2 must be viewed as one part of a unified constitutional scheme. And yeah, that makes sense. The state couldn't regulate alcohol sales in its state and say, if you voted Democrat, you don't get to buy beer, because that's a violation of the First Amendment. So there is a limitation on how states can regulate the sale of alcohol in their state. The court goes back into the history of how alcohol has been regulated by the colonies and the states after the Revolution. I like this one line. The court says, one wave of state regulation occurred during the first half of the century. The country's early years were a time of notoriously hard drinking. That's from the Supreme Court opinion. They go on, following the Civil War, the court considered a steady stream of alcohol regulation cases. The post-war period saw a great proliferation of saloons. I like that history. In other cases that were decided before prohibition, Alita writes, the court staunchly affirmed the right of the states in exercising their police power to protect the health, morals, and safety of their people. But the court also cautioned that this objective could be pursued only by regulations that do not interfere with the execution of the powers of the general, the federal government, or violate rights secured by the Constitution of the United States. That's relatively straightforward. States can do this regulation as long as they don't contradict the federal Constitution. Notice that there's no, unless the state has a really good reason exception there. But then the court goes on. For that reason, the court concluded mere pretenses could not sustain a law regulating alcohol. And we've talked about that, right? We don't want them to try to pretend something that's not real, a pretense. Rather, Alito goes on, if a statute purporting to have been enacted to protect the public health, the public morals, or the public safety has no real or substantial relation to those objects or is a palpable invasion of rights secured by the fundamental law, it is the duty of the courts to so adjudge and thereby give effect to the Constitution. Some states wanted to ban alcohol within their state. This is before prohibition. So they passed a law, you can't make, sell it, or consume it. But they couldn't stop it coming in via mail because the Dormant Commerce Clause that the Supreme Court made up said that the states could not enact laws that stopped interstate commerce or discriminated against out-of-state actors. 
Remember, Congress didn't say that. The Supreme Court had determined that was what the Commerce Clause meant on its own. Congress passed the Wilson Act in 1890. The idea was to let states decide if they wanted to allow the shipment of alcohol into the state. And for some non-entertaining reasons I won't get into, the Supreme Court said that the Wilson Act failed to achieve its goals. And as Alita wrote in this case, despite Congress's clear aim, the Wilson Act failed to relieve the dry state's predicament. So in 1913, Congress tried again with the Webb-Kenyon Act. This one worked. Alito writes in this case, Following passage of the Webb-Kenyon Act, temperance advocates began their final push for national prohibition. And with the ratification of the 18th Amendment in 1919, their goal was achieved. The manufacture, sale, transportation, and importation of alcoholic beverages anywhere in the country were prohibited. By 1933, however, support for prohibition had substantially diminished, but not vanished completely. Section 1 of the 21st Amendment repealed the 18th Amendment and thus ended national prohibition. But Section 2, the provision at issue here, gave each state the option of banning alcohol if its citizens so chose. As we have previously noted, Alito writes, the text of Section 2 closely followed the operative language of the Webb-Kenyon Act and thus naturally suggests that Section 2 was meant to have similar meaning. And as recognized during that period, the Commerce Clause did not permit the states to impose protectionist measures clothed as police power regulations to benefit the health, etc. A state may not, under the cover of exerting its police powers, substantially prohibit or burden either foreign or interstate commerce. So you can make laws for legitimate health and safety reasons, but not for protectionist reasons. And of course, the courts will have to figure out and decide if the stated reasons for health and safety are legit or they're not which is precisely what courts are not designed to do. On this point, Alito goes on and concludes as to this point. As for the Dormant Commerce Clause, the developments leading to the adoption of the 21st Amendment has convinced us that an aim of Section 2 was not to give states a free hand to restrict the importation of alcohol for purely protectionist purposes. If you're going to accept the Dormant Commerce Clause, that makes sense. But he says it can't be done for purely protectionist purposes. So some level of protectionism is cool, as long as you have some other reason that you can argue. And again, the courts will determine that. Alito continues for the majority. Although some justices have argued that Section 2 of Amendment 21 shields all state alcohol regulation, including discriminatory laws against other states, from any application of dormant Commerce Clause doctrine. The court's modern Section 2 precedents have repeatedly rejected that view. We have examined whether state alcohol laws that burden interstate commerce serve a state's legitimate Section 2 interests, and protectionism, we have stressed, is not such an interest. Your ears should poke up. Anytime a court gets to decide what is a legitimate interest, you should be skeptical about that power. Alito goes on. To summarize, the court, the Supreme Court, has acknowledged that Section 2 of the 21st Amendment grants states latitude with respect to the regulation of alcohol. But this court has repeatedly declined to read Section 2 as allowing the states to violate the non-discrimination principle that was a central feature of the regulatory regime that the provision was meant to constitutionalize. So states can regulate alcohol within their state, but they can't be too protectionist, is what the court is saying. They go on. When a state statute directly regulates or discriminates against interstate commerce, or when its effect is to favor in-state economic interests over out-of-state interests, we have generally struck down the statute without further inquiry. It does not at all follow that every statute enacted ostensibly for the promotion of the public health, the public morals, or the public safety is to be accepted as a legitimate exertion of the police powers of the state. And of course, 
the courts will get to decide that. And in this case, they did, Alito says. It would be hard to avoid the conclusion that their licensing laws, Tennessee's laws, overall purpose and effect is protectionist. In this court, the association, the retailers, have attempted to defend the two-year residency requirement on public health and safety grounds, but this argument is implausible on its face. Yeah, they're right. It's pretext. They go on. Similarly, unpersuasive is the Retailer Association's claim that the two-year requirement gives the state a better opportunity to determine an applicant's fitness to sell alcohol and guards against undesirable non-residents moving into the state for the purpose of operating a liquor store. Basically, what the court now is getting into is just, just stop it with the nonsense with what they're saying. We all know the Tennessee alcohol retailers just want to keep out competition. Quit embarrassing yourselves with these nonsensical justifications. And the court rightfully throws out these attempts to justify the residency requirements as being about a concern for safety of the people of Tennessee, because it's not. It's ridiculous. The final word from Melito and the majority. Like the other discriminatory residency requirements that the retail association is unwilling to defend, the predominant effect of the two-year residency requirement is simply to protect the association's members from out-of-state competition. We therefore hold that this provision violates the Commerce Clause, dormant one, and is not saved by the 21st Amendment. So you can get a liquor license to operate a liquor store in Tennessee, even if you haven't lived there for two years. I think this is the right result. These Tennessee residency requirements are nothing more than an attempt at economic protectionism. But this whole dormant Commerce Clause thing, as Gorsuch and Thomas indicate in their dissent, doesn't have any legitimate constitutional basis. And Congress, if they had been required to do so, would have used, or should have anyway, should have used its legitimate constitutional power to regulate interstate commerce and prevent such protectionism. And there you have it. I'm D.K. Williams, and this has been The Law, Episode 46, Tennessee Wine and Spirits Retailers Association versus Thomas. Supreme Court case from this past term, we went over the Commerce Clause, this idea of a dormant Commerce Clause, prohibition, its repeal, and how the 21st Amendment still has application today. We're brought to you in collaboration with Speak Easy Ideas, and a special thank you to our sponsors, Presidential Wealth Management in Lovely Nick Greenwood Village, Straightforward Shooting, the Grand Lake U.S. Constitution Week, and if you'd like to promote your business on the law with D.K. Williams, please send an email to Bethany at speakeasyideas.com. Let me know what you think. Go to Twitter at TheLawDKW and Facebook.com, TheLawWithDKWilliams, and follow us there. Until next week, freedom is dangerous, my friends. Live dangerously.